0: Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. It is hard to believe, but we have reached episode number 100 of this podcast. I know some of you have listened to all 100 episodes and I am so incredibly grateful for your support and for sticking with me while I figured this whole podcasting thing out. When I started this project, I really had no idea what I was doing, so let me give you a brief history of the show. As you may know, I've run the Sex and Psychology blog for over a decade now, and I owe pretty much all of my successes to the blog because almost every amazing thing that's happened in my career can be traced back to the blog in some way. It's how I got a regular writing gig at Playboy for a few years. It's how I got a book deal. It's how I got booked on several television appearances and also started working with some awesome sex toy companies. Pretty much everything ties back to the blog, establishing me as a sexuality educator. At any rate, in 2019, I got an email from the publicist for Drs. John and Julie Gottman because they had a new book coming out and were offering me an interview opportunity. I had long been an admirer of their work and I was thrilled to have the chance to finally meet them. And I thought, well, I could just write up our interview and publish it on the blog, or I could try something a little different. So I said, hey, let's record a podcast. And that's how it was born. That interview turned out great, but I had a really shitty podcasting setup at the time. I had this $20 microphone I bought on Amazon and some free recording software that I downloaded to record Skype calls. And that was it. But I had so much fun with it and I got to meet these really cool researchers that I probably never otherwise would have met and I learned so much from them. So I started recording shows on occasion, but in that first year, I only got around to doing three of them because it was a lot of work and it was hard to fit in on top of everything else I was doing. But then in 2020, the pandemic hit. Suddenly, a lot of my work dried up. Speaking engagements were canceled. There was no more work travel. And I had all of this free time on my hands, more free time than I had ever had in my adult life. But there was almost nothing to do because we were all stuck at home and I was really missing social connection. So I started recording more and more, and I released about two episodes per month that year. And the more I put out there, the more I saw the show grow. So in 2021, I started releasing one show per week. And then this year that moved to two shows per week. The show has done phenomenally well. It currently gets around 100,000 downloads per month, and it's listened to in dozens of countries around the world. I didn't have any great dreams or ambitions when I started this journey, so it has blown all expectations out of the water. I love it so much that it's now the single biggest thing that I spend my time on. This show means so much to me personally and professionally. Personally, it was a lifeline during the pandemic. But professionally, I found it to be so rewarding because it offers this really in-depth opportunity for sex education that you just can't replicate with a blog, where people spend just a couple of minutes reading or skimming an article. And the feedback on the show has just been so wonderfully positive. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with me, and thank you for everything you do to support this show, whether that's sharing episodes on social media, patronizing the show's sponsors... Or being one of my paid subscribers on Apple. I love doing this show, but it has gotten pretty expensive between better recording equipment and software and hiring a producer. It really takes a village to put it all together. So I couldn't do it without my amazing sponsors and paid subscribers. So thank you. I truly, truly mean it. So how do you celebrate 100 episodes of a sex show? Well, I decided to put together a clip show of the most fascinating facts about sex we've discussed in the past 100 episodes. My friend Chris Soa, who runs an awesome podcast of his own called Sex with Strangers, helped me narrow down some of the most fascinating, funny, and mind-blowing exchanges that are well worth revisiting. We're going to talk about why butt plugs used to be marketed as a cure for asthma, whether sexually transmitted infections can hijack our brains and change our sexual behavior to make them more infectious, how a study of a cow's clitoris became the basis for what we think we know about the human clitoris, why some people get sick every time they orgasm, and much more. This is going to be a really, really fun show. So stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. The Modern Sex Therapy Institutes provides continuing education, certifications, and a PhD in sexology to mental health and medical professionals across the globe. MSTi is a one-stop shop for ASEC sex therapy certification requirements, including education, sexual attitude reassessment, and supervision. MSTi offers flexible payment plans and learning options. Attend from anywhere in the world and learn from experts on sex and relationships. For more information on their programs and offerings, visit modernsextherapyinstitutes.com. That's Institutes.com. Want to last longer in bed? Our friends at Promescent can help. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. You can customize it for your own body and desensitize only the areas you want. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and is physician-recommended. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at Promescent.com, where you'll also find an extensive selection of lubricants, supplements, condoms, and more. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. All right, let's talk fascinating facts about sex. We're going to start back in episode 21. For that show, I interviewed sex historian Hallie Lieberman, who is author of the fascinating book Buzz the stimulating history of the sex toy. Let's listen in as Hallie tells us about the long and fascinating history of sex toys and some of the creative marketing tactics for the world's first butt plugs. How long have humans been using sex toys? What is the earliest known sex toy in existence that you were able to to find out about?
1: Yeah, so the earliest sex toy, and I have to, it's 30,000 years old, the thing that looks like a sex toy. I have to couch it with that. These are stone tools from 30,000 years ago that were found in Germany. And these were phallic. and, And we don't, of course, we don't know how they were used. And some archaeologists say they were used as spear sharpeners because they have little like marks on the side, but they look like dicks. And so, like, there's no reason in my mind we need to sharpen spears on dicks like we don't you know, sharpen knives on dildos in the 21st century. So it was hard for me to believe that's what they're doing. And some people say that they were actually, you know, dildos as well. So that's kind of like the ur-dildo, the oldest, oldest thing that some people are claiming is a sex toy.
0: So maybe they were multi-purpose, potentially. <laughs> well,
1: just like the vibrator today is sold as a back massager. And you do use it. Like my boyfriend will use my Hitachi magic wand on like his legs. And I'm like, what are you doing? That's for my clitoris. <laughs> but yeah, they could have been multi-purpose.
0: Okay. So sex toys seemingly have been around for a long time of course as you mentioned there's a lot we don't know about exactly what people were doing with some of these artifacts and so forth but something else i'm curious about in terms of you know you taking this deep dive into the history of sex toys was there anything that really surprised you over the course of your research you know for example were there any older toys or maybe advertisements for toys that you came across and you were just kind of like What the fuck is that? And I say this because, you know, when I look at some things in the history of like sexual health and wellness products, I have those WTF moments. Like for example... Lysol used to be marketed as a feminine hygiene product and it's like you were literally telling women to put Lysol inside their vaginas which is a terrible idea and no one should do that but that's one of those things that makes me go what the fuck so did you have any moments like that as you were studying and diving into this?
1: Oh my God. I had so many of those and I'd be in archives and I'm a loud person, as you can probably tell from this podcast. And so I would see them. I remember looking at, um, and I would, I would scream or I'd go, ah, you know, and people would give me nasty looks and be like, no, I'm looking at a butt plug. Come on. So I was looking at this anal rectal dilator. I'm sorry. They were not called butt plugs then. A rectal dilator from like around 1905. And that advertisement said it would cure your asthma. And that was one of those screaming in the archives moments where I was like, oh my God, people believe this? Jesus. Like, and I don't know if people actually believed it, but it was really like, it was like you put, and it looked exactly like a butt plug today, a rubber butt plug. And they would say it would cure asthma and that it would also cure all your ales and stuff. Um, they, vibrators, I saw an ad that said vibrators cure deafness, that kind of thing.
0: Wow. I'm pretty confident that butt plugs don't cure asthma, but that <laughs> is really fascinating. But I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but part of my my sense of this is that there were prohibitions against sexual aids and pornography and all of these things throughout history and so marketers had to come up with creative ways of getting their products into the hands of consumers and and they would do something along the lines of what you said where maybe they would tout some type of potential health benefit associated with it so that it was more of a medical product rather than a sexual product and we saw something similar with pornography where if it could be argued that it had artistic value, that it wasn't really porn. And so when you look at kind of the history of porn, you see that, you know, a lot of things that were distributed as pornography were designed and created to, to give them some artistic element. So it could be argued that it was art and not porn. like photos of naked women posing with fishing poles and other things like that (laughs) why would they be posing with a fishing pole just naturally because they weren't like actually fishing necessarily (laughs) does that reasoning make sense oh
1: my god it totally makes sense and sorry the fishing thing reminds me i'm writing a story on lesbian sugar babies and one of them was posing with a grouper (laughs) fully clothed and i was trying to figure i was asking my brother who was a who's a fisherman like what he thought about that and he was just like well that's a great grouper <laughs> but anyway back to like why they were doing it absolutely i mean we had laws anthony comstock who was like working with the postal service who was this censor who was super christian and actually went after i'm jewish so i'm always interested in this stuff he actually went after jews somewhat who were, uh, a a lot of Jews were in the rubber industry and were selling condoms and dildos. But anyway, he would look through advertisements all over the country and look to see if he thought something was a sex toy or a contraceptive. And he would raid the offices and and shut down the businesses. So you had to be super careful. So yeah, that's why butt plugs, one of the reasons they were marketed in this kind of like pseudo-medical way, vibrators, absolutely, and the guy who was doing this marketing butt plugs this way, he had this theory of the orifice, like orificial theory of health, that everything was connected through like our anus, like all of our health problems. I mean, he may be right. <laughs> I mean, there might be some <laughs> truth. To that. I'm not really, but you know. And anyway, other doctors were like, "This is bogus. He's just using it to sell his, you know, rectal dilators." And some people said, "Oh." He's trying to promote uh, sodomy. So there were a few people during his time who were like, wait a second, this, this is weird. But that was one of the main reasons that they were marketed you know, in a non-sexual way.
0: The next stop on our journey of fascinating facts is episode 39. I interviewed Dr. Ina Park, author of the incredible book, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Let's listen in as Ina and I talk about whether STDs can hijack the brain to make you do their bidding and the role of STD testing in reality dating shows. Something I want to pick your brain about is this idea of STIs essentially hijacking our brains. Now, don't recall... You covering this in your book, but this is something I've read research on for a few years now. And so, for example, there are some animal studies where, uh, you know, in one case, they looked at crickets who had contracted this infection that is spread through sexual contact. It actually renders the crickets infertile, but Mm -hmm. it makes them mate more and they're faster to mate, right? And so it enables or facilitates spread of that sexually transmitted infection. So, you know, it's adaptive for the virus, but, you know, bad for the crickets, right? Right. Now, in humans, there have been a couple of studies looking at this. I saw one recently looking at men who have sex with men who were infected with HIV, and they looked at whether the men were in the acute phase when they got their HIV diagnosis, meaning Mm -hmm. the infection had happened recently, or whether it was something that happened later on. They'd been infected for a while. And what they found was that for the acutely infected HIV positive men, they reported a higher number of recent sexual partners compared to the men who were diagnosed later on. And, you know, one of the speculations there was that maybe that virus is directing or changing sexual behavior in some way to facilitate its spread in humans. And, you know, I've also seen some studies looking at the link between toxoplasmosis and interest in kinky sex. And toxoplasmosis is, it's a parasitic infection that is transmitted from cats. And we know that when rodents are infected with toxoplasmosis, it actually changes their fear response. So... Rodents instinctually, you know, they evolved to have a fear of cats and to be repelled by the smell of felines. Mm -hmm. But when they're infected with toxoplasmosis, it creates this fatal attraction effect because it tinkers with their fear circuitry and it makes them attracted to the scent of cats, right? So instead of being repelled by their natural predator, they're attracted toward them, right? So that's wild. The thought is that in humans, maybe. Toxoplasmosis is also affecting fear responses, and so maybe that opens the door to more riskier sexual activities or greater mm-hmm. interest in you know kinky and other sex acts that might have somewhat greater risk associated with them. So I'm just curious, as an STD expert, what's your take on this idea of STDs potentially hijacking our brains and altering our sexual behavior in a way that facilitates spread of the virus?
2: Well, so it's not something that I've seen a lot of literature on in human beings, but what I will say is that I think it could be possible for infections where you have a sort of systemic response. So things like HIV, which spread throughout the body, things like syphilis, which also once you get infected actually disseminates widely through all your organ systems, that I could see maybe affecting cognition or somehow changing the brain so that one was more prone to certain types of behavior. But things like gonorrhea and chlamydia or things like herpes, which are, you know, locally focused and don't disseminate widely, Mm. be Mm. harder for me to imagine that. But I love this theory. I'd heard about the crickets, but not about the toxoplasmosis. So, (laughs) you know, the truth is, is, as you know, and as we've seen as well from the, you know, from the pandemic, if you get a disseminated viral infection, it can alter sometimes, you know, long-term your functioning, your, you know, your mental capacity. You know, we talk about people with long COVID having, you know, persistent sort of brain fog. It can affect your immune system, your nervous system. You know, some folks have, you know, autonomic nervous dysfunction, nervous system dysfunction after having, you know, a viral infection with COVID. So my point is, is that I don't think we fully understand or comprehend all of the ways that having a disseminated infection could potentially affect You know what I mean? Your future behavior, your future brain state. And by the way, gonorrhea can also disseminate and can actually affect, we know that it can affect the brain. It's rare, but it can absolutely happen. So, I'll put a pin in that, but I, I definitely <laughs> think it's possible.
0: Well, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate you, you know, making the distinction between the disseminated infections and those that are more localized. I think that's a, a really important way of thinking about this. But now my brain is going in all kinds of directions. I'm thinking about this past year in the pandemic, and we've conducted some research that finds that, you know, people have gotten a little kinkier during the pandemic, but they've also yep. adopted a lot more cats. And so yes, <laughs> exactly. well, it's.
2: Yes, exactly. What's going to happen with the toxoplasmosis and the kinky masks? sex and yeah, there's many things that are interplaying (laughs) right now.
0: So much research to be done. Now, before we take a quick break, I wanted to talk about something from your book. This Is a little off topic from what we were previously discussing, but it's something that I think almost nobody realizes, which is that reality TV shows like The Bachelor actually do STD tests on potential contestants. And it turns out that the most common reason people are rejected from that show is because they have a positive test for genital herpes. And, you know, this was another thing that just kind of like blew my mind. Like, I didn't realize they're doing like STD panels on dating show contested. So, curious, what are your thoughts on that practice? And do you think it's a good idea or not?
2: I mean, I'll tell you for herpes, I think it's a terrible idea. And I'll tell you why the test that they're using for the bat. This is the bachelor we're talking about here. The test that they're using actually comes up with values that are either a low positive or a high positive or negative. And if you come up with one of these low positive results, just in the, what we call the predictive value of the test. So the probability that that positive result truly reflects genital herpes is about 50%. So it's like flipping a coin. And then you're telling this person who wants to find love on reality TV that not only are you not going to be allowed to, but now I'm giving you a diagnosis of a lifelong viral infection, which is a false positive diagnosis. So I can tell you that that absolutely false positive diagnosis have been given out. And I really wish they wouldn't do that. Or if they insist on doing that, that they don't screen people out because of it and let them have a disclosure conversation in front of millions of viewers and let's see how the other person deals with it and how great would that be in reducing stigma?
0: Yeah, I mean, because you never hear these STD conversations taking place in the popular media. I mean, it's very rare for them to come up and when it is, it's, you know, this horrible stigmatized, terrible thing, right. you know? Or, so it's I, yes, yeah,
2: or, or it's a, a joke. Yeah. Or it's a joke.
0: And so having that, you know, sort of positive model for how does this work? Because, you know, a lot of people contract STDs. Like this is a normal thing. And so we have to learn how to communicate about these things effectively. So I appreciate your advice and insights there. The third stop on our fascinating facts journey takes us to episode 53. I interviewed Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, who hosts a wonderful podcast of her own called do we know things that corrects common misconceptions about sex. Let's listen in as Lisa Dawn and I talk about how everything we think we know about the clitoris and the penis is probably wrong since we're on the subject of anatomy, let's talk about the clitoris. I've heard a lot of people say that the clitoris has just as many nerve endings as the penis. And some people who even say that it has twice as many nerve endings as the penis. (laughs) And some people even throw out this very specific number. They say there are 8,000 nerve endings in the clitoris. Now, I know you've done a whole episode on your podcast about what we do and don't know about the clitoris, and you thoroughly debunked this idea that we know exactly how many nerve endings are in the human clitoris. And in fact, it turns out that the 8,000 nerve endings figure actually seems to come from a study that didn't even involve humans, and that was based on cows. So (laughs) please tell us, Lisa Don, what don't we know about the clitoris and how many nerve endings it has?
3: Uh, Well, I can say definitively, I scoured everywhere and there are no studies about how many nerve endings are in the clitoris or in the penis in humans. That just does not exist. We do not know that thing. (laughs) And as you said, it's true. One person, uh, Jessica Pinn on Instagram, who has an account that talks a lot about clitoral anatomy, seems to have uh, narrowed it down to a book about bovine health. And I'm blanking on the name of the actual book, but she has posted a screenshot of it. And that seems to be the source of the estimation that there are 8,000 nerve endings in the clitoris, but not in humans, in cows.
0: (laughs) And it's so interesting because I've seen that figure before. And, And I've seen these sayings about how, you know, the clitoris has just as many nerve endings as the penis or twice as many. I've even seen that appear in human sexuality textbooks. And, you know, it's taken as a statement of fact. And I think the work that you're doing, especially through your podcast, is so important because it challenges a lot of these things that we just assume to be true. They're just repeated so many times, and we see them appearing on social media. popular magazines, internet articles, Wikipedia pages, textbooks, like we just assume this stuff is true. But when you start digging deeper and looking for the truth, you realize just how little we actually know and that some of the things we thought we knew are totally wrong. And related to this, a few episodes back, I had Hallie Lieberman on the podcast, we were talking about the history of sex toys. And, you know, there's this popular idea out there that, at one point, doctors were manually stimulating women to orgasm in their offices and they invented the vibrator to cut down on the length of office visits for these women who had been diagnosed with hysteria. And when Hallie went back and scoured the literature, she actually didn't find any evidence of this actually happening. You know, And so that's another one of those things that sort of seeped into popular consciousness that just isn't true it isn't backed up by the data and the research so thanks again for the work that you're doing here so we've talked about the g-spot and the clitoris let's talk about the penis for a moment because there are certainly things we think we know about the penis that might not be entirely true either and one of them is average penis size right? We've all heard facts and figures about this and some of them are drastically different from one another. So I'm curious, what's your sense on this? Do we actually know what the average penis size really is?
3: (sighs) That's a good question. And I mean, there are studies on this, but they seem to be the the samples are often weird. So I think there's one where they got people to come in a tent on spring break somewhere in Florida (laughs) and measure their penis length. Um, Another one was uh, through a condom company and they had people measure them themselves and then send in their measurements. And so I don't know if a definitive study has actually been done that we can say okay yes this is the average penis size but my understanding is many of the average are, averages are kind of hovering around five to five and a half inches erect for the average does that sound like what you've heard
0: that that tracks with what I've heard and you know there there are several studies of this but as you noted they all have limitations mm-hmm. and you know one of the things to think about here when we're talking about penis size measurements is who is willing to participate in a study of penis size in the first place. And so if you're just studying like drunk spring breakers (laughs) who are willing to (laughs) drop trow in a tent and have their penis measured, you know, there might be a a selection bias there in terms of who's willing Mm -hmm. to do that. And then it also depends on who's doing the measurements. Is it a trained clinician who's doing it? Or is it the person themselves? Because we know that, you know, people might, have a tendency to overestimate what their penis size is or measure it from the most generous angle. And then there's also the fact that we really only tend to measure length. We don't measure girth. And, you know, when we talk about things like what is it that brings say, women pleasure. We're talking about cisgender, heterosexual women. And actually, in the research, they report that girth matters more than length. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we don't actually really have great estimates for girth because we're so focused on length, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in a lot of these studies too, they're not actually measuring erect penis length. They're measuring stretched flaccid penis length,
4: right? (laughs) Right, right.
0: (laughs) You know, and so there was also this study I saw recently where, I think it was a study out of Japan where they measured cadavers, like dead men's penises and they stretched them (laughs) out you know to to create the measurement and then they were actually correlating that with the size of their nose which was like I I don't know (laughs) (laughs) you know you know how I said this is like sort of a wacky world of sex research sometimes yeah so we're literally well not us but some people are literally measuring dead men's penises and noses (laughs) and seeing if there's a relationship between them wacky stuff Our final stop on this fun journey of fascinating facts is episode 60. I interviewed Dr. Nicole Prousey, who has extensively studied the science of orgasms. Let's listen in as Nicole tells us what we know about this rare phenomenon where some people literally get sick every single time they have an orgasm. We talked earlier about how some people experience what are known as anhedonic orgasms, or orgasms that aren't accompanied by feelings of pleasure and sometimes lead to feelings of sadness. However, there are also some people who literally get sick every time they have an orgasm, and this is called post-orgasmic illness syndrome. Now, we don't really know how common this is, but it does seem to be more prevalent in men than it is in women. But basically, after any orgasm, whether through sex or masturbation, they develop these flu-like symptoms that can last for up to a week. And I know that you received a grant, Nikki, to study this condition. So I'm curious as to whether there's anything you can share about what you found or what you think might be going on in the people who experience this.
4: This study was our pandemic heartbreak. (laughs) We had just started (laughs) recruitment when COVID-19 started. So We are much, much delayed, but I'll share what I know so far, and that is these guys appear to be fairly rare, to your point. That is, uh, the group that's funding our research is a national organization of rare diseases (laughs) for a reason. Uh, We think it's fairly uncommon. And it's kind of remarkable how similar a lot of their symptomatology seems to be. So, you know, some of them will report more kind of fuzzy cognition issues, but a lot of them are strongly flu-like. You know, they they seem to kind of get a cold every time. And um, Marcel Waldinger was a main early force in trying to study these guys, and the theory at the time was potentially some autoallergen that is either something in the ejaculate or some aspect of that process that contained something that they were allergic to, which resulted in a few case studies where guys would try to auto-inoculate, and that's exactly what it sounds like, that <laughs> is putting their own ejaculate into their body. Can't recommend, not good clinical evidence for it uh, <laughs> at this point. And our theory was that you know, it could be an auto-allergen, and we need to explore that possibility. That's the predominant theory to the extent there is any theory. But uh, another possibility is that something to do with activation of the synthetic nervous system, which appears to be unique in sexual response. So with Tierney Lorenz, she and I are conducting a study where we're bringing these guys in using our orgasm protocol to monitor their physiology during the experience, but largely also their inflammatory cytokines, pre and post orgasm. And surprisingly, we do not know what happens to inflammation post-orgasm. It's literally just unknown. There's not like some small case study or small... It's unknown. No one has asked. (laughs) So we also have a large control group (laughs) that we're collecting with that. And the goal is to try and compare the inflammatory responses of these guys. So we are limiting it to men because it's predominantly seen in guys. And contrast to the controls, you know, and we have to have the controls because we don't know what's typical and looking at IL-4 and 6, which are interleukins that are commonly measured as indexes of systemic inflammation. So I am so excited to get these data because, number one, they're profoundly unique in their own right in the controls, <laughs> much less for these guys who are suffering To try and understand, is the experience they're having tied to our measure of sympathetic activation during their climax, which we're capturing with galvanic skin response, or is it invariant to that? That is, they seem to have these inflammatory responses one way or the other. So I think it would be nice for the guys just to have, in some sense, the validation that there is a shift in their inflammatory response that's atypical. And some of that is just, you know, a way that science I think can help people feel validated in their experience. When someone says, well, that's weird, that can't be real, they hopefully will be able to say, you know, here are some data showing that our response is different <laughs> from other people's. And ideally we want to get a mechanism to see, you know, what should we be targeting if we want to intervene to help these guys? What is it that's associated with their negative experience? And we're Hoping that those two indices primarily, that is a measure of the sympathetic tone during their orgasm response, and then the inflammatory variability is going to help guide us to what the answer is for those folks.
0: I can't wait to see what the data say because this all is... So fascinating to me. And I think it also points to yet another reason why studying orgasms is really important and worthwhile because there are some people who experience things like post-orgasmic illness syndrome. And if you don't study the physiology and what is actually happening and going on there, then you're going to have a really hard time developing effective treatments. For these people and with post-orgasmic illness syndrome in particular it can be a really devastating condition you know I've read case reports of some of these men who you know they go to great lengths to avoid sex and masturbation even though they would like to do it but they can't do it because they literally get sick from it and so they'll try and plan sex around times when they know they can be out of commission like have a vacation week coming up right because they know it's going to take a long recovery time and you know the idea of that is just sad right because most of us take for granted that you could have sex kind of like almost any time and you know you're going to feel good afterwards but you know in this case this is really unique and it can have a really profound impact on somebody's life and their happiness and so again just yet another important reason why the science of orgasms is important i hope you enjoyed this collection of fascinating facts this was such a fun trip down memory lane for me Thank you so much for listening and thanks for supporting this show and helping us get to episode 100. Here's to the next 100. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, sexandpsychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.